Hello, everyone, and hi, Abrik. Thanks for having me on. Um, why China? How did I get here? That's a great question. I am sort of a, a child of a different generation in the sense that I was part of FinTech 1.0, so to speak, which was the use of technology in banks for structured products and um, quantitatively driven finance in the 90s. Um, so I ended up in China uh, after the big crash of 2010. Um, frankly, the, the work that I did disappeared for good reason. And I won't, you know, I, here's, let me put it in another way. The good news is that my products never touched mortgages and never cost people money. That's the good news. But still, the desire for people to buy and for corporates to buy highly complex, structured, mathematically based products ended um, with the financial crisis. And I ended up here because um, I literally had, had been here in 2003, loved it. And in 2010, China was the best economy going. And um, I said, I got, I literally got on a plane, had two large duffel bags. And uh, that's how I got here. There was, there was work. There was interesting, there were interesting things going on. And uh, I'm a little bit of an adventurer to say the least. And uh, that's how I ended up in China. It was a, it was for me uh, a transformational move because not only did I escape, I, I specialized in EU and U.S. obviously finance, and I crossed the Pacific and now became an international finance guy, finance guy, but in the uh, Pacific Basin, which is really so far away intellectually. Doesn't the miles are immaterial, but culturally, intellectually, how things work here in China and in Asia overall um, is very, very different. And we're seeing that now through things like RCEP program, uh, um, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Platform, or I, I, I can't get the acronym right, but we're seeing how different Asia is to the rest of the world. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how Richard Turin ended up in China. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Rich. Uh, well, everybody, hi. You're listening to Money and Me, and I'm your host, Abhirag Paracharya. And today, our episode is taking us far away, way into China, into the hearts of China, where Richard Turin has been there for the past 10 years. He's been doing incredible innovations in fintech over there and his recent book came out, by the way, it's called Cashless. You guys should definitely read it out. Well, of course, we'll be discussing it on the show as well. But bottom line, oh, there it is. There the book there is. There it is. How can, how can, I never do an interview without a book present. It's, it's always beside me. So there's Cashless, and it's available on Amazon. And actually, the funny thing is it's got a QR code that actually works on the cover. <laughs> that's that's way miles ahead. Great job on the QR code. <laughs> All right then. Okay, let's let let's start off this interview. Then I got some great questions for you, and I'm really interested to know your reply. Because what happens is, Rich, um, you know, we often ask questions about China to a lot of people, but since they're not in China, even though the answers are pretty fine, it it doesn't feel like an authentic enough answer. But since you have been living there for the past uh, ten, eleven odd years, I think you're very qualified to answer these questions. 
So here comes the first question. Let's talk about the book itself since you brought it up. So Cashless, China's Digital Currency Revolution. So it was released in April, I believe, last year, uh, this year, April this year. Yes. And it got some great reviews all over the world. I was going through the Amazon reviews as well. I went to Amazon.com, saw the reviews. Turns out people really loved it. Now, my question, which I believe a lot of my viewers would also want to know, is how do you end up writing these books? Like, how does an author like yourself begin to write on such a topic? Like, take us through the process. Sure. Um, it was, uh, it was a, it's a big book. And it ended up being, I think, 500-some pages, which is a little in paperback form. Oh, 400 pages in paperback. And the reason is because it's such an expansive topic. Um, so how I got into it um, was very simple. I'm a product of a banking background for the majority of my career in the U.S. and in the EU. And what I saw happening in China with regard to digital payments, what I call the version 1.0 payment, which is WeChat Pay and Alipay, was so mind-blowing that I thought it was an important story to tell for um, the world. Because, frankly... WeChat and Alipay brought China further into the digital revolution than anyone could imagine. And now the next generation, central bank digital currency is coming up. So, um, it, frankly, I, I won't mince words. It blew my mind. What was happening here is so mind blowing that um, I thought it was a story that had to be told. Um, and at the same time, as I wrote the story, it just kept on getting bigger because there's just so many facets. And I already have notes for Cashless 2.0 or the, the, the modifications to the book because in a year, um, much of, uh, much of what I wrote will be fine, but there will certainly be edits and there's certainly aspects to it that I left out already. But in the end, my mind was simply blown by what was happening in the digital sense or digital currency sense here in China. And it continues to be blown. Look, great story. I just got back from a, a trip into a Yunnan province, which and Shangri-La to go hiking in the mountains. And, you know, it's really mind blowing. You know, you go far, far away in China and there you're in the middle of nowhere. And there's the, green symbol for WeChat or the blue symbol for Alipay. And and I'm not joking. I found this at 4,000 meters. There's a little shepherd, literally a shepherd's hut, and he sold bottles of water and tea and some other things. And there it is at 4,000 meters in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, it's where you least expect it. You'll, you'll find it. And that's how pervasive digital payment is in China today? For me, it looks like China is at least 10 to 15 or even 20 years ahead of practically every other country in the world. Because here we are talking about digital payments. We talk about crypto a lot. We talk about crypto revolutionizing how payments are made. But here we have the next evolution, CBDCs, and they're already a thing in China. So for the benefit of our listeners, uh, if you could tell us the key differences between crypto and CBDCs, because what happens is these terms are used very uh, interchangeably, even though that's not the case. So if you could hear. Yeah, it. 
Absolutely. Um, let's let's tackle that right up front, okay? And particularly within the crypto community, there's a lot of misinformation about what China's central bank digital currency is all about. Okay. One hand, central bank digital currency. It is in theory no different than the paper money that you have in your pocket. Okay, it is issued by the central bank and it is a liability of the central bank. And then in the other hand, we have crypto, which is a broad term. um, But generally, when we think of Bitcoin, um, which is the king of of crypto right now, we think of a um, a people led movement for money, something that is backed by faith and belief of what its value should be, as opposed to the central bank saying, hey, this is worth, or central banks, plural, figuring out what the value of your currency should be. And they are um, in uh, opposition to one another. So I know that Coin Republic has a lot of fans of crypto, and I think that's great. But these are different spectrums or different ends of the of the of the digital currency universe and by the way up front for everybody it's not one or the other my belief is they're both going to get along peaceably in the long term but what we really need to be thinking about and this is really true is that every cbdc or central bank digital currency i'll use that term a lot today cbdc is really um, a distant cousin of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency was first, and let's make no qualms about it. And if we look at the technology for China central bank digital currency, it borrows a lot from the crypto world. So um, thanks to all the crypto fans out there, um, crypto is changing our world. And, you know, you don't now for those who say, well, I really hate cryptocurrency. Fine, go central bank digital currency. But oh, and but but here's the funny thing, and and you know, it's the two sides of this coin, right? The crypto guys and the CBDC guys. Sometimes they they hate each other so much that the CBDC guys don't want to like give credit to the crypto people for the great work that they did in making this and showing us how digital currency can function. And the crypto guys, some of them hate CBDC so much, they disown it. You know, they really get mad at it. I'm neutral. I love, I love both. They're, and, and I think they're both going to coexist. So bottom line, no matter where you go, blockchain technology is supporting both, uh, both crypto and CBDCs. And I think that, that is, yeah, right. Go on. Yeah. Okay. One, oh, yes, you're right. There's only, I, I have to make one caveat in here. And the interesting thing is that when China designed its central bank digital currency, it actually doesn't run on blockchain. It oh. uses, yeah, right? I mean, so we assume, and that's a mm-hmm. fine assumption, that all central bank digital currencies are blockchain-based. And that's absolutely a reasonable assumption. But in the case of China, because the country is so big and because the throughput requirements for uh, transactions is so great. Um, blockchain has a hard time with it. So when you look at central bank digital currency in China, the design spec was that it has to handle a minimum of 300,000 transactions per second. 
That's a really big number, and it's not something that blockchain um, can handle uh, readily. Now, I know that there are fans of Ethereum 2.0 that say it can, and when Ethereum 2.0 is launched and in business, it's great, uh, you know, power to it. But right now, most common blockchain uh, can't handle the, the throughput. Um, and I know people will say sharding, and I know there's a lot of technical ways that you can get around that, and those are all true. But remember, central bank digital, digital central banks are not on the bleeding technology end. They need to know that the technology works well as it is. And, and also never forget, China started this project seven years ago, so things like Ethereum 2.0 were not a re, were not a reality. Uh, so this brings us to my next question. So, Rich, what I want to know from you is a lot of other countries are interested in developing their CBDCs as well. You have Sweden and Russia who plan on test releasing their uh, currency sometime at the end of this year. You also have countries like India who is developing their CBDC, actively developing it, might release it maybe a couple of years down the line. So what is the technology that we are looking at when CBDCs come into question? So like you said now, China did not use blockchain to develop their CBDC. But do you think other countries might use a blockchain-powered CBDC? And if so, what's it going to look like? Absolutely. Um, So look, that so many countries are following China into the CBDC uh, universe is wonderful. Um, And uh, there's no race here. It's not like there's a race to be the number one country, which happened to have been the small island of the Bahamas. So power to the Bahamas. But what you're really looking at is a technology that it can increase financial inclusion for all. And I would argue that the countries that will benefit most are those countries like India, like Bahamas, where you've got populations that are do not have access to banks. Now you say, well, the Bahamas, it's, it's tiny. Yes, it is. But it has small islands, and small islands with a small population cannot support a brick-and-mortar bank. That means these people are unbanked, just as many rural villages in China couldn't support a bank. So when they had access to Alipay and WeChat Pay, they finally had financial inclusion. So I love um, that so many countries are looking into CBDCs. I think it's great for their populations. I see this as a um, big step forward for financial inclusion. And as far as the technology stack they're going to use, each one of these is custom built. There's no model. There's no. There's there's nobody saying you have to do it this way. So. Each country is going to look at its needs as far as transactions per second, flow put, flow put, um, where it's able to put its various uh, servers and other things spread out within the country to get that sort of speed. Uh, And they're going to come up with something that works for them. And now, and as far as China goes, I have a caveat. I always say China's Central bank digital currency is not built on blockchain, but it is designed to be carried on blockchain. So what we're seeing already is the first um, trials of uh, uh, payments 
salary payments made to people on blockchain. So don't worry. Blockchain is still there. It's, it's, you know, it's in use in China with regard to central bank digital currency. Even if it's not built on, it will be carried on blockchain. Great to hear that. That <laughs> puts back my confidence back in blockchain. Uh, next question, and this is perhaps a very important one because it has a lot of people concerned. So tell us, Richard, do you think the creation of uh, the Chinese CBDC can it pose a threat to the power of the U.S. dollar in any way? And if so, can you explain how effective a digital currency is over fiat? Sure. Um, and I think the so the answer to that is clear. Yes, it poses a central bank digital currencies overall pose a threat to the dollar, but not in the way that people might think. Um, we have to think about how deep, deeply embedded the dollar is in the, in the world's financial system. So we have bonds and stocks. We have all kinds of investment products that are valued in dollars. They're not going to change tomorrow. So what we have to do is to think, well, and this is what China did. China thought real hard about, well, where is central bank digital currency going to have an impact for us? And really, it's going to be in trade, buying stuff. So China is the world's largest exporter. Countries buy lots of stuff from China. So we don't expect that your local bond or stock or other financial instrument is going to be valued in RMB anytime soon. But if you're an importer exporter and you're buying stuff from China, these purchases can be revalued into digital RMB. And the trick that the digital RMB is going to do is that it's going to make it faster, easier, and cheaper to buy from China. So if you have a choice, you say, well, I am, I'm going to use this country out of, out of nowhere. I'm going to say, if you're an importer in Kenya and you're buying from China, you have a choice. You can take the local Kenyan currency, convert it to dollars, send the dollars to China, convert the Chinese dollar into RMB, right? If digital RMB can be one stop and cheaper and faster and easier, sure. Um, and pr- then China's trade can start to revalue to some, in some meaningful proportion into digital RMB to further the internationalization of China's yuan or RMB, they're interchangeable, they mean the same thing, okay? So what people are missing on, when when people read about digital RMB, they're often thinking this, saying, well, we don't use the RMB right now, and we don't want to use the RMB. And yeah, that's absolutely fair, but it's not just a currency. The digital RMB represents what I would call a digital entry token, all right? And that entry token is not just to using RMB, but to using China's digital logistics and digital transport systems. So we've got blockchain in China right now. We have blockchain trade systems that are very active between Hong Kong, Macau, and China, okay? And these blockchain systems allow for digital financing, 
digital digital transit through the um, customs process. So it's not just that you're going to say, well, I'm using money in digital RMB. You're buying a, this entry token, and you're not just going to use money. You're going to be buying into this digital transport system, which China really innovated. Okay, I live in China. When I buy stuff, it's fast, it's immediate to my house, it's 24, 48 hours, um, because I live in a big city where we have great speed. But if you look carefully, it's this digital logistics system that has been built out domestically that is going to go international. So um, the dollar, so let me go back to the original question just to make sure we're clear on this. Yes, the digital RMB poses a threat to the dollar. Not immediately. It is a will be a long process. It will be about 10 years before enough countries start using the digital RMB to buy from China in trade. And these trade volumes are valued so highly, they're so large, that that alone will make the digital RMB and with it the RMB, the, the non-digital version, um, a bigger actor on the world stage of currencies. So um, I think we're, we're right at the foot of a tsunami or a revolution, and it's about it's going to happen. But don't think that it's going to happen tomorrow. It's not like the digital RMB turns on and suddenly everything revives. No, you have to give... It's going to take time. And could you tell us the um, benefits of using a digital currency over fiat? Like what are the possible direct advantages you can think of? Sure. Look, there's lots of advantages. Let me make it clear to people from the West. All right. So the number one reason people from the people question people ask me in the West is, look, I have. I'm looking for one right now. I don't have it. I have a credit, uh, you know, I have a credit card, all right? And I tap the credit card or I swipe the card and I have immediate digital payment. You do. And that's great. But there's a problem. Your pay, you know, your merchant fees in countries like the United States are around 3%, 2% maybe in Europe, but you're paying an intermediary to transfer your money. And 2% and 3% is a lot. And if you're a vendor, so let's go back to China. In China, payment is free through WeChat and Alipay, or virtually free. There's very small charges at one part of the process. But for all, per, all practical purposes, it's free. A guy who's selling noodles on my corner here can't afford a point-of-sale device where you swipe or tap the card because you have to buy or rent them from the, from a financial institution. They can't afford a cell phone. They can't afford to lose two or 3% on merchant costs. That's their profit margin, two or three. They're working on very small amounts because China is still a developing country in a lot of ways. So um, this concept that you are paying an intermediary um, to move your money, doesn't make sense anymore. We want money movement that is as immediate and free as email. And that's the 
And that's the real promise. And look, I give a lot of credit to the crypto guys. That was their promise. You can debate whether you like Bitcoin or not. That's really not the issue. The real thing with the crypto guys, and I give them credit because I wasn't there when it, you know, I was, I wasn't, I'm look like a traditional banking guy, right? So when crypto first came out, I'm like, what's this stuff, right? I admit that. I mean, it's better to admit our, our flaws, but they had that vision of immediate, direct, digital payment without a third party intermediary being paid or taking a margin. Or, or, or a fee on that transmission. And that's really huge. And when it came to China, there was an explosion. Small vendors who couldn't afford these point of sale devices for credit cards. Bang. They, they, they used it immediately. And it led to a GDP boost in China. Well, nobody really knows how much, but when, um, President Xi Jinping announced an, an elimination of poverty in China, abject poverty, really bad stuff. Part of the part of the system that helped alleviate that party was the access to finance, the access to financial inclusion. And, you know, that's good stuff. And um, not paying an intermediary is a good thing. No doubt the credit card companies in the West did a great job with their early version of digitization, but it's time to make that next step. So that's the number one reason, reason we should all be excited about um, uh, uh, digital currencies. The concept that I have to pay for people in the West, Square. I use Square, you know, I have to pay them four or five percent when I use PayPal. I'm paying them. I look at what I when I transfer money with PayPal and I look at the costs, I'm shocked. Because though because my Western life I use Square and PayPal. My China life it's all free and immediate, you know? So it's a real gap. So look, the other thing of the benefits, that's the most common benefit that people in the West can look forward to when they get central bank digital currency. And if you're listening to this and you're saying, well, I don't care. I, I don't know what to say. You tap and you think it's free, but the guy who's selling you the coffee, the, guy, per, the vendor who's selling you is, is, you know, is getting a 3% hit, which you pay for. It's, you know, it's not free. You're paying that extra 3 or 4%. And if you add up your credit card bills and take away 3% and you could put that in your pocket, that would be good money for most of us. Clearly, there's advantages to taxation because you know where the money, where the money is. And clearly there's less fraud with the system. There's a lot of um, advantages um, other than that. But I think that's the number one thing that people from the West have to um, really consider. And to consider that the, the the costs are not marginal; they're real, and you're paying them. And why should you? Which brings us to the biggest question, perhaps. The, this is the question I've been looking forward to the most, Rich. Why do you think China did this incredible revolution years ahead of the West? Right now, the CBDC is out, like you're saying. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's transitioning itself into the blockchain. But there you have the West, you have US who has 
openly declared that they are not developing a CBDC at any point. So what has led to this huge difference? Okay. Um, that's a, look, that is a great question. And that really gets to the heart of what's going on in China. And you have to go back. All right. China has these things called five-year plans. Okay. And you have to go back to, we're on the 14th, 13, 12, the 12th, I think it's the 12th five-year plan. And there was the realization that with 1.4 billion people, the only way the government could provide services was through digital. So what the government did on it, it's 11th or 12th, it's in my book and I, the, the, which five-year plan escapes me now, but what they did was they had an active policy of dig, putting 3G at the time into all of the small villages. So when I told you the story before that I was at 4,000 meters and I had signal, I did. I had 3G signal. It was slow, but it worked. But it really goes to the heart of the government's belief that digital was the best way to reach such a vast populace with services. And particularly what eventually happened was banking services. Now we've got the next, a couple of years later, after all of these small villages are wired up, 2014, we've got um, WeChat Pay and Alipay launching. And that was the next brick in the wall. Okay, so the first thing is you need the villages to be wired up, and that happened 2010, 9, 10, and 11, basically. By 2014, the next big step, and that was the People's Bank of China launched, gave digital banking licenses to big tech. The perception was that we can't reach our populace with financial services. We can't build enough banks. It's just You just can't with this big a population so spread out. So they, the, the People's Bank of China gave uh, f- actually five li- licenses. I can only remember four. They gave licenses to the big tech players. Ready? We, Tencent, which is the, the, the WeChat parent company, okay? They gave them a digital banking license. Alibaba, of course, they gave a digital banking license to. The next one is Baidu, which is the, the, the Google equivalent search engine here. And the fourth one uh, was given to Suning, which is not a household name, but Suning is the largest chain of electronic stores all throughout China, massive electronic store. And there's one more, and I, I, it just escapes me at the moment. But just imagine for a moment if you gave Google a banking license, Amazon a banking license, and Facebook a banking license. You know, and now ready for it. This is the part that really should shock you because this is beyond imagination. You're the People's Bank of China, the central bank. You give them banking licenses with the full expectation that the cost, there will be a cost to state banks. So just imagine for a moment, because it's funny, think about the Federal Reserve actually 
giving banking licenses or doing something that would impact J.P. Morgan or any of the big banks in the West. You're like, oh, come on, they're never going to do that, right? But that really is what changed. So what China did was twofold to summarize. First was the complete digitization of the country by putting 3G in the early days in all of the small villages and then giving these banking licenses. And those were the two fundamental um, factors that changed China forever and made it go cashless. Here's a question, Rich. Here's a big question. What was the uh, view of the banks? Like, did they protest? Did they say something? Like, how did that entire thing play out? You know, that's a really good question. And the the funny answer is that yes the banks are, of course were not thrilled with the with the granting of private banking licenses but they knew it was inevitable these are state run banks so china was well on its way uh toward um privatizing many different businesses open market free market capitalism was well underway then so they knew that it was going to happen what no one knew the people's bank didn't know wechat pay alipay no one dreamed that it would explode the way it did there was look if you ask people i lived in china in 2010 i got here in 2010 okay when i had to pay for my department security deposits i had to go to the bank with a small backpack <laughs> and i would actually get the largest banknote in china is 100 rmb which is roughly uh, 14 15 i can't remember i would get a backpack full of bricks of cash and that would be my security deposit pre alipay and wechat pay so everyone knew that there was a pent up demand for better services that didn't require handling of cash credit card networks were not as well distributed in China because there's a cost to using them and many small vendors simply don't want to pay the cost or cannot afford the machines but isn't there a risk rich let's say the guy you mentioned who sells noodles just beside your house since you mentioned the currency denomination i can figure out he also must be like he must have a big backpack full of currency notes where he is working so isn't that risky what if someone comes and takes all the cash away absolutely and i can't remember the statistic off the top of my head but um petty crime or i'm not sure if i should call it nonviolent petty i'm not sure the exact term but crime where you steal cash okay plummeted in china because yes back in 2010 when i got here it was very common to have people steal from the store you know i hear i'm going to rob you okay guess what if you took away the cash the the crime statistics literally plummeted because nobody had cash anymore so it was really kind of funny because a wonderful side effect of of uh, digital currency or digital uh, going cashless was that there was a lot less robbery because nobody has anything to steal i don't have any money in my pocket i can walk you know and most cab drivers vendors or or other people in the big cities there's there's nothing to steal anymore 
what are you going to steal? My phone? Well, go ahead, steal the phone. It's got biometric identification. You can't, you know, you can't do anything with it. It, it, it almost sounds like utopia. Is it utopia, Rich? Okay. No, okay, look. Let me, if I say utopia with regard to China, people, my, my listeners are going to flip out. So <laughs> let's, let's separate. China is not utopia. It is a wonderful country. If it wasn't wonderful, I wouldn't live here for 11 years. It's great. Utopia, no. Is it utopia specifically with regarding payment system? Yep. Absolutely. It is utopia because I can pay anyone, any service. I have super apps that put all of these bill payment or, or services that I consume. They're all on either the Alipay or the WeChat Pay app. And that is utopia because, look, great story, right? I, 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 I've been in China for a long time, but I still have bills to pay in the United States, all right? So we arrive with COVID. Nobody can go to the bank. And I'm calling my brother, and I said, look, you gotta, we have a, I have a joint account with my brother. And I said, look, you got to pay these bills for me. And he's like, I can't. I can't go to the bank. There's no way to pay them. So I go to use the famed U.S. payment system Zelle, Z-E-L-L-E, and I'm laughing because <laughs> it's it's so far behind WeChat and Alipay that, you know, it's, yes, it worked. Yes, I managed to pay whatever I had to pay. That's the good news. But it was certainly a um, more complicated process. Uh, than uh, than I would have liked, and it's uh, it's yeah. So you 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 said before you said China is many years ahead. I generally peg it at about ten years, and the reason, and that, I think that's conservative. And the reason why I only say ten years is because stuff changes so fast now that I don't know how um, that when I when you start saying anything beyond ten years. It's almost in, incomprehensible to think for anyone to think that far out now, right? right. But um, is it utopia? Yes, because well, look, let me give you the, the best example. I now have platform services on um, my phone, and virtually any service that I want with money is available to me. So, I theoretically now look. I'm a. I'm a I am a foreigner living in China, I do not have access to the full spectrum, so I can't buy stocks. But on my app, I can manage my money, I can buy insurance, I can do any of the formal of the financial services all in one place. And ready, I have what I call hypermobility of my money. Okay. Meaning that I can it's my money. I have freedom to do whatever I want with that money and put it and place it wherever I want to. And I am not asking, do they accept this credit card? Is the, you know, am I paying the 3% on the credit card? Do I have to get <laughs> Zelle? Remember Zelle? All right. So do I have to get the payment approved on Zelle because it's the first time it's ever gone through and, you know, they reject it three times. So the concept of hypermobility of money is tremendously liberating. 
Um, we are dependent on third parties for money transfer. And it works. The system is good. I'm not saying it's horrible. But the concept of a super app, the concept of include, uh, of, of finance that is embedded into a platform, a digital platform, it's a wonderful life. It really works. And I'm living that future now in China. And one more thing, just to, just to pound this in. Financial inclusion. What's available to me for, um, uh, for immediate small money market type investments is available to the person in the smallest village in China. You know, you don't have to open a brokerage account. You don't have, you know, you're not. So it is transformational and it's pretty close to utopia when it comes to having access and the ability to to move your money around where you want it to move and for free. It's mind-blowing. And, and, and that's really, that's at one point, that's what really hit me and moved me to write the book. I understand that Chinese systems are not for everyone. Your country, wherever, wherever you are and wherever you're listening, your country will make new and different systems that are in line with what your beliefs of privacy or what your country, your nation's beliefs of privacy should be. And by the way, I'll tell you right in advance, spoiler alert, most combinations concept of privacy isn't that much different than China's. But, but, but you will have access to this future and you should look forward to it. It's a great future to, to, to live in. Earlier in the interview, you made the statement that crypto and CBDCs can coexist aside from each other. Like they're not competition to each other. But in China, we have seen uh, for the last couple of years that the Chinese government has been going hard on cryptocurrencies. It stopped crypto mining in multiple locations. It's prevented any sort of financials related to bitcoins or crypto from occurring. And of course, the spotlight is on their CBDC. So... Can you tell us about what the Chinese government might be thinking at this point? Their sure. uh, motivation to ban crypto and push ahead their CBDC. Sure. Um, there's a lot there to unpack. First of all, let's, uh, China's, um, China's position is clear. They believe that there is one and only one currency that is valid within China for payment use, and that is the Chinese RMB. In fact, that's a um, building a building block. They had three or four, three fundamental building blocks when they were building the central bank digital currency. And their architecture is that there is one coin, and that coin is the RMB. So clearly... Um, when, if we look back in 2013, which is when the first, first bans on crypto, um, started in China, there is the, there is the clear desire to control the currency and to say that the legal currency in this country is RMB and no other. And, um, for those of us who are fans of crypto, um, you know, Binance, the early exchanges, many of them migrated out of China in 2013 
and the rest is history. They, they exploded. They became huge multi-billion dollar companies to their credit. So um, concept of one coin paramount. Two, because China is a developing country, like many other developing countries, we have currency controls. That's not news to anybody who lives in the developing world. So China has currency controls and clearly crypto presents a threat to those controls because people convert to crypto, move it offshore without using the banking system. And that's problem number two, money smuggling. So clearly um, the Chinese government is trying to avert money smuggling. And the third thing that is sort of Perhaps not in order, but something worthy of mentioning that's a big thing is that Chinese investors love volatility. So, okay, the rest of the world thinks of Bitcoin's volatility as its Achilles heel. It's a disaster because it's so volatile. Chinese investors see the volatility from a different perspective. They think, wow, I can make 20% in two days. That's great. Now, let me explain. Um, and this was, there was a great article in Harvard Business Review about this a while ago, and it just, it just nailed it. Um, and it's, the article was the three things people get wrong about China. And what, it, because China's history is so volatile, people, investors tend to discount long-term gains. So if you tell an investor here, this is a great bet, it's going to be good in 15 years, 10 years, they look at you and their their thought is that 10 years is so far out who you know that, that they devalue that game if you tell them this stock is going to the moon next week they're like this is great so to a certain degree chinese investors love volatility or are more comfortable with it i i, I don't perhaps love is too strong but are comfortable with that volatility and they see um, cryptocurrency as a way to make money relatively quickly. Now, the government, to its credit, says, look, we are generally concerned for the social fabric, that people will invest in this and lose their money. So the recent crackdown that people saw um, about a month ago, there was a big Reuters article that said, uh, basically it said China's cracking down on crypto, banks can't touch it. That, that was actually, a, the headline was wrong because that had already happened in 2013 and in 17 by laws in those prior dates. Right. But what the government said in its announcement was very, um, was really pretty practical. It said, look, this is a public service announcement. We are concerned. Many Chinese people are buying this. We're concerned you're going to lose your money. And if you lose your money, there is no recourse. And for a country that has a lot of poor people, yes, it has tremendous large, yes, China has a tremendous large number of millionaires now, more than the United States. That's true. But with 1.4 billion, the majority of the population has, is very humble. 
And the government said, look, please don't lose your money with this stuff. We're really concerned because we see the buying patterns. So so um, to summarize, the government certainly uh, their position with regard to crypto is that they're not they while they legally allow you to own it. There's no question you have you are legally allowed to own it. The government's position is that there is one coin in China. That's the RMB. That's the only way to pay for stuff legally. Um, two, they certainly don't want to crack down on illegal currency movement across borders, which is, I don't think that's any surprise that uh, crypto is used for that. We all know a lot of, about that already. And the third one is they don't want their population to get slammed with, um, you know, a 30% up or down uh, a, a loss. Um, even if their society is, how shall I say, um, wants to make a quick buck and thinks that that might, that just might be the ticket. I can make 20%. That's great. I'll tell, I'll take the money. So those are the three reasons the Chinese government has difficulty with crypto. And we just saw this last weekend, um, Sichuan, the province of Sichuan, which is one of the biggest mining provinces, there's a 20% decrease in hash rate over the weekend that we're recording this. So yeah, they're coming on hard on crypto right now. Um, and, um, that's the government policy here. What are your thoughts regarding El Salvador? Because here we have crypto putting a crackdown and here we have El Salvador legally accepting it as a legal tender. Now, of course, both countries are completely different when it comes to demographics, when it comes to their financial situation. So we have to take that into account. But just just taking them on paper, one against the other, do you think El Salvador's announcement is going to maybe bring Bitcoin a bit closer to, you know, financial inclusion for other countries as well as the years go? Oh, look, oh that's a, look it's a great question. And it's very hard for me. Um, look, I love the vision. I love the white paper. The white, Satoshi's white paper is different from reality. Okay? So the concept of being, bringing financial inclusion to people through digital currencies, whether they're CBDC or crypto, love it. Absolutely. But when you say financial inclusion and the asset is good jumping up and down by 20 or 30 percent, if your eggs cost 20 or 30 percent more this week or last week, poor people can't afford that. So, you know, that's problematic. So give me a stable coin. And then great. You know, so does El Salvador's acceptance of Bitcoin assist Bitcoin with its greater mission of being relevant and greater acceptance? Absolutely. Was the World Bank's uh, refusal to acknowledge or lend help predictable? Sure. You know, you know, if there was ever a an organization that wanted the status quo, it would be <laughs> the World Bank, right? So, I, I when I when I read the news, like you, I thought it was hilarious. I'm like, I'm reading it, and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, who who couldn't have predicted that? So the you know, so the answer is, for many developing countries, 
saving in Bitcoin may be superior to inferior local currencies. It just might be. I don't, you know, El Salvador is one of many. I really don't know how volatile or how debased or good or bad the currency of El Salvador is. I'm sorry. So I, El, Salvador, I'm, El Salvador uses U.S. dollars for all purposes. They technically don't really use much of a currency. Okay. So, um, you know, look, it de-dollarizes them. That's good in some, in some aspects because it gives them greater um, ability to diversify away. And that's fundamentally good. But specifically on financial inclusion, it's really hard for people. The, the most fragile groups of people are the poor and they cannot afford volatility. So if they were to, if El Salvador was to say, I would accept a stable coin, you take your pick dollar-based stablecoin, I'd be more excited about that in some ways because I just don't think people can afford the ups and downs right now. And, you know, rich people can. You're, you're, you know, you're a guy living in the United States and you watch your crypto account go up and down. Yes, you have some tears, but you still eat. And poor people, and this is, this is China's experience as well, you know, like, we there are just tremendously large, very very um, vulnerable groups of people here, and they and you know they certainly cannot afford um, uh, food price increases, and that's a big thing in China right now because um, they had they just had the pork uh, virus that swept swept through the pork pop uh, the the pig population here, the pork prices went up and that really hurt a lot of vulnerable families so. Is that too long? But basically, uh, conceptually, I like it. Practically, I don't see it helping a very poor, vulnerable person living in El Salvador. You know, living in El Salvador. Do you? Am I? You know, what do you? What do you think on that? Because I'm I'm open on this one. No, I I share similar things. So the thing is, uh, El Salvador's economy runs on remittances. So a lot of the population live abroad, and they send money home to El Salvador which is why the currency used there is USD. So the practical purpose in this one is that, you know, you take care of the fees, the remittance fees. If you can transfer over Bitcoin, it's much cheaper. But then I also think of it partly as a publicity move where El Salvador is trying to attract foreign investments from a lot of countries. Because, you know, if you, since they made it legal tender, there is no taxation on any Bitcoin profits made. So this is also a great move to include El Salvador because let's face it, before this announcement, how many of us actually knew about El Salvador? But ever since they made this announcement, all of a sudden it's all over newspapers. Everyone's talking about it. There's a huge debate going on from both the sides. So like all human concepts, I believe there is also publicity factor to it. It's almost like a stunt. Look, if, if, if Bitcoin can lower the cost of remittances into El Salvador. And yes, and, and look, I admit this all happened when I was on holiday, so I haven't had a lot of process time. If it's legal currency and there's no taxation on it, and it helps people to 
bring their money in. And, you know, the important part for most people to, you know, who are not crypto friendly to understand is you can get in and out within a matter of 20 minutes. You know, it's, it's, it's a relatively fast. Well, maybe a little longer, but it's a relatively fast. If they can save money and don't have to use Western Union, God bless them. Yeah. I mean, look, this that's at some level. This is the dream of digital currency is the ability of you to transfer that currency without a third party and without the costs. And if you look at the costs for remittances, not just you dollar to El Salvador, another great one in my region is Hong Kong into the Philippines. We are taking money away from the most vulnerable people. And I, I'm, I know I, I sound like a dreamer now, but that's fundamentally wrong, you know. And when I look at my own charges to send money either direction, I'm I'm stunned at how much it costs me. It bugs me. So and you know, I will still eat when I pay those charges. A lot but of people can't. A lot of people can't. And if you don't have a heart, and if you're not thinking that this is potentially good for some, what are, you, what are you thinking? These are our most vulnerable people. We need them to eat. We need them to grow. We need, and, if, and, if, and if Bitcoin can help in some small way in El Salvador, God bless them. I think it's great. You because know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. Because, you know, you see countries like Nigeria as well, where the currency keeps playing games with the people. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a very, uh, you know, there's hyperinflation in Nigeria at the moment. But what, what a lot of the people have done is they've invested into Bitcoin because, let's face it, Bitcoin's volatility is not as severe as the inflation in their country's currency. So you, we do see, yeah, go on. Yeah, oh, please. But look, I, I write about that in, in Cashless. Because there is a there is a real risk that for certain countries that if China's central bank digital currency is available beyond commercial use for trade, you can destabilize these countries because people will choose to hold a different currency. They'll hold central. They'll hold China's China's. uh, uh, EU one or their whole Bitcoin. So yeah, I get it. And there's sort of a mixed blessing here because the more money that flows out in another currency, the less stable these currencies become, which is bad for everybody. All right. So one of the things that China has to be very aware of is, you know, you just can't boom say, okay, whatever country, you know, here's, here's, uh, the digital yuan, go ahead, use it because you, you know, you really do, um, risk this destabilization. But, you know, the funny thing is I laugh because, um, at the, I made the same point that you do in the book. People are saying, oh, the people from the West are like the digital, the RMB is a terrible currency. Who wants to use that? And I'm like, Terrible relative to what? There are lots of places where the RMB is a great currency. And there's lots of places where this step from local currency into dollars is really expensive. And then you're going to swap dollars for RMB. You know, there's no currency. There's no natural currency pair. So, yeah, um, 
digital R&B will be just great for a lot of places. And if it's legal and if it's backed by a country, wow, that's, you know, that's a home run or that's a really big thing for many countries. And I laugh because the West, the Western media, they're like, well, who wants the R&B? Well, let me tell you. A lot of countries would love the RMB, and and you're right. The same with Bitcoin. So people tend people with stable currencies tend to think, oh well, who wants Bitcoin? Well, yeah, a lot of people want Bitcoin. A lot of people want RMB because relative to what they've got, it's a good deal. So sure. Definitely. Final question for the session. I know it's been a long one, but then it's been a really fun one as well. So. Concluding everything, all that we have spoken, when can we expect your next book, Rich? And what is it going to be on? Oh, please. I'm still recovering <laughs> from the last book. You know, it's really... <laughs> so uh, just uh, like a couple of quick stories here. So look, this book, Cashless, ready? Here we go. There's Cashless. I'm going to put it up on the screen again. All right. So look, Cashless was funny because I got about 80 or 90% done writing and boom, all sorts of new announcements from uh, from PBOC and other developments in the market that made me like rewrite 30% of the book. So whenever you write about China, it's hard. So the next book um, will be probably, I think that I will do an update to cash list probably within 18 months. And I already have a list of chapters that need to go in there. Um, and really one of the most important chapters that I didn't put in there that I regret now is the use of central bank digital currency for de- for developing economies. I think that's a great one. Just, just a, a quick one. one for you. Clearly, the United States, which rules the currency platform of the planet, has a tremendous risk to digitizing its currency. Look at the Bahamas. They have much low, they have nothing to lose by digitizing their currency and through financial inclusion, everything to gain. So you really have to think about this. I know it's like, there's a lot of stuff about CBDC, destabilizing the banking system. No, that's, that's, that's BS. We'll go back to that another time when there's more time, but, but for developing economies, CBDC represents a path to financial inclusion that can fundamentally alter their countries with minimum actual risk. You say, well, they'll do, they'll inflate their currency or, or overprint. They can do that with cash now. There's no, there's no developing countries. You don't need central bank digital currency to do that. If they really want to do it, fine. Let them, let them print cash. Um, but I think one of the, things that we're seeing now is that many developing countries are looking at CBDC. I think it's great. And the next addition to um, cashless will be a couple of chapters or at least a longer, longest chapter on that and a few other things. The next actual book, I predict that in two years, we're going to launch central bank digital currency in China. There is a research center currently in Xi'an, China, that is looking at 70,000 new uses for central bank digital currency. That's huge. Think about it. So what people are missing 
is that they see central bank digital currency simply as a cash replacement. No, it's so much more. There are so many new innovations that are going to come out of this. That 70,000 number is massive and it's wonderful. So central bank digital currency is a door to a new universe, a new world where we have freer ability to access and use our micro money, hypermobility. And that innovation process will be the foundation of book two figure two and a half, uh, uh, two and a half years. So let's, let's, give, let's give it a while. Let's let some of them happen. Great then. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Rich. I had a lot of fun asking you these questions. I myself have got a great insight into CBDCs now. And I'm sure our listeners as well will maybe walk home with a slightly different perception than what they have. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to meet with you and to meet all your audience out there. Connect with me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Please. Great.